Listener Production. Want to learn how to feel good whilst attracting what you want into your life? I have designed a course for you using the manifesting methods I use daily. This is an audio course, so it can be easily listened to in the car, going for a walk or on your daily commute. And I've designed printable worksheets with exercises to help you practice what you're learning. All the info on the course is in this episode show notes, or you can go to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com to purchase Manifest Your Greatness. Elizabeth Day is an author, journalist and broadcaster. Growing up, Elizabeth wanted to make everyone like her. Lacking friends at school, she grew up to believe that quantity equaled quality. Having lots of friends meant you were loved, popular and safe. She was determined to become a good friend and in many ways she did. But in adulthood, she slowly realised that it was often to the detriment of her own boundaries and mental health. In the conversation of this hour, we talk about this, as well as her struggles with fertility and why failing is just a detour in the right direction. That's what I would say to anyone who is going through a potential friendship, breakup or ending right now, that you are not a bad person for thinking this. And I would encourage you to honour the friendship for what it gave you, rather than believing the most important thing is to keep it going and to keep it going and to eke out those bits that you still can and because that's energetically draining. The chances are that if it's energetically draining for you, it is also for the other person. Part of the difficulty is that we also haven't had the language for ending. People tend to drop out or ghost you and that can be incredibly painful. And I think that if we get more comfortable with the idea of some friendships ending but still being thought of with love, we'll be able to communicate more easily as well. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Elizabeth Day is the author of many best-selling books, including Magpie and her newest book, Friendaholic. This conversation is full of so many nuggets of wisdom around societal expectations to have the perfect life and how to stop people-pleasing to fit in. My hope is that our conversation allows you to help identify the blocks you have created in your own life and puts you on the path to freedom and joy. Elizabeth Day, welcome to the podcast. I want to start at the beginning and talk a bit about your younger years and the fact that you say that you are a people pleaser and I want to know how that came about. It is so lovely to be doing a podcast on the other side of the world. So thank you for staying up. And I have got up early to do this because I was just so impressed by what you do. And you're right that I became a people pleaser as a child, but I didn't have that language then to identify it as that. That's a retrospective analysis on my part. But what happened was, as you can hear, I speak with a very English accent and I was born outside London in a place called Epsom in Surrey. 
and spent the first four years of my life there. And then my dad got a job as a surgeon in Derry in Northern Ireland. And we moved over there in 1982 when I was four. And 1982 was a really troubled time in that part of the world because there was essentially a civil war raging between people who wanted to be part of the United Kingdom and others who believed in um, a free Irish state. And bombs would go off on our way to school. Um, I got very used to military checkpoints and going shopping on a Saturday in the shopping centre, suddenly having to be evacuated because there'd been a bomb threat. And that just became part of my normal everyday life as a child, to speak with an English accent in certain areas marked you out as different. And it sometimes marked you out as an occupier or as an enemy. And at primary school, that was manageable. I had a really lovely primary school and it was very small and people were very accepting. But when I went to secondary school in Belfast, that shifted and I felt very much like the outsider and I got a bit bullied at that school. And I think that's when I realised that there was real safety to be had in acceptance, in having friends and in being liked. And I think that's the genesis of my people pleasing because it became a matter of security for me. So when I changed schools because I was quite unhappy at that secondary school and I ended up getting a scholarship to a boarding school in England and I started that new school absolutely determined to have as many friends as possible. And it wasn't that I was just trying to collect people. It was something far more primal than that. It was a yearning for belonging. But what I hadn't realised and what I didn't realise for very many years is that there is a crucial difference between belonging and fitting in. Mm. And belonging is when you are accepted as you truly are. And fitting in, which is what I was doing, is when you change yourself according to what the majority wants from you, according to what someone else wants from you. And that became my way of life. I would try and work out what someone else wanted from me. And then I would try and meet every single one of those demands, not just in friendships, but in romantic relationships. And that had quite a damaging knock-on effect. It's almost like you had to be a chameleon, dependent on what that person wanted, which I can only imagine would have been exhausting. Definitely. You're so right. You're the first person who's ever said to me that sounds exhausting and it totally was. And it still is. You know, I'm I'm a recovering people pleaser, but I'm also, and I know this is ironic because I'm talking to you on a podcast, but I'm an introvert. I'm a natural introvert who I think has learned how to appear extrovert when necessary, because we live in a world that is geared up for extroversion, not for quietness and those moments of solitary replenishment that I need. And so, yeah, you're right. It was really exhausting because I never felt fully relaxed in myself. In fact, mm. I didn't really know who I was because I was so busy trying to meet these projected notions of what other people wanted from me. I actually didn't spend enough time understanding who I was apart from that. And to cut quite a long story short, I got divorced when I was 35. And that was the knock-on effect of that. That was the corollary of all of that people-pleasing was that I had ended up in a dysfunctional marriage and I didn't really know why until I realised that I thought I'd been being myself, but I hadn't been. And actually I'd allowed this other person to do things that 
weren't good for me. And leaving that relationship really changed the course of my life. I would like to talk about that because the relationship that you were in was one with a man who was in the public eye. And I wonder for you, it seemed like everything on paper, it was tick, tick, tick. And then you realized that that wasn't the case. When did you realize within the relationship that you weren't being yourself? That's a really deep and important question. And I don't think I can pinpoint one moment. I think it was a very gradual realization. And often when people are stuck in relationships that aren't functional for whatever reason, it takes a really long time to gather up the knowledge of what you need to do. And for me, I remember that. I remember not being happy, but not understanding why I was unhappy. And I was going through unsuccessful fertility treatment at the time. So I thought, well, maybe that's it. And that absolutely was part of it. But there was something much more profound for me. And it took me a year to realize I needed to leave, that if I stayed, I would lose myself and it wouldn't be good for either of us. So I can't pinpoint one moment where I realized I wasn't being myself because it was a sort of slow erosion. But I do remember a seminal moment when I spoke to my best friend, Emma, and she is an amazing person and someone who's incredibly accepting of me as I am and totally non-judgmental. And so she had provided a really safe space for me to be in that relationship and to be supportive of my choices, but also for me when the time came to admit that things were going slightly awry. And I remember her saying, I'm so glad you told me And the fact that you have told me the truth and that you've been honest makes me love you even more because you've been so busy trying to project this image of perfection and the perfect relationship that you haven't been able to be yourself. And actually, it's so wonderful that you can be now. And it was such a liberating moment for me because I realized I could be wholly myself with Emma And not only would she not judge me, but she would actually love me more for Mm. being flawed. I also remember her saying at a key point during that process, it's like I'm talking to you and you're behind a perspex screen and I can't get to you. I can see that you're there, but it's like an AI version of Liz. She calls me Liz. And I'm sort of knocking on the screen and I can't get through. She has since told me that that moment was one of the scariest moments for her because she felt that I was slipping away and that she had to intervene in a more forceful way than she might have done otherwise. And I remember it being a very key moment for me because I suddenly realized, oh, okay, this is how I'm coming across to the person who knows me and loves me the most in all the world. Something has to change. What was it that she saw in you that made her worried? I think she saw that... I, that thing of losing myself. Mm. I mean, she said subsequently that she noticed that my voice would change when I was in the room with her. And uh, when my ex would call me, my voice would shift. (laughs) And in her words, I would become a sort of 50s housewife, someone very, very eager to please and to meet every single demand. And she just didn't recognize that version of me. And so I think that was the really frightening thing for her was that she felt that I was becoming a shell of myself. Wow. It's hard for anyone to actually step away from a relationship. So kudos to you because 
there's a lot of people in relationships that would wish to do that, but they just can't find the ability to be able to. And I think that's very courageous and inspiring. And I wonder for you, I've seen that you have written about the fact that it was hard because you had shared friends and that some of his friends believed his version of the story and not yours. And, you know, this Mm. always happens, even if it's amicable, like it's very rare that the friendships stay exactly the same. And I wonder how you move through that. Yes. So I should preface this by saying that my ex will undoubtedly have his story to tell. And I'm very aware in talking about this that I don't want to trespass on that. So all I can say is what my version of events were and what my part to play was and the things that I regret and had noticed about myself. And you're right that one of those things was when you decide to get divorced, there's such a sense of personal failure, or at least there was for me attached to it, and a personal sense of shame and a slight stigma to it. I remember being so worried about what my parents would think of me or what all of those people who came to our wedding and gave us gifts would think of us. And there's something that feels so public about it that it makes the shame worse. Mm. (laughs) And I really grappled with that. And that's why for many of us, it is an incredibly difficult decision. And I don't discount that for a minute, especially if you have children. And actually we didn't have children. And I think that made it easier in one respect because I wasn't worried about the impact on any child. But when I left and I was the one who decided to leave, I realized that I had to be comfortable with the fact that there would be people in this world who I'd once been close to who would never understand my decision and who would stand by my ex and as they should, because every party deserves to have their community of friends. And I realized that actually there was something really important about him having his friends who believed him and my having mine who believed me. But for a people pleaser, that was such a good lesson for me because I had to live in the certain knowledge that there were people who actively disliked me and totally misunderstood what I'd been doing, would never know the truth of what had happened because the only people who would know the truth were me and my ex. And I had to get comfortable with that because there was no way I was going to persuade them and nor should I waste my energy trying to. And actually, I'm really grateful for that period of my life now. It was really hard, but on the other side of it, you get this real strength. You suddenly realize that actually the person you have to rely on and the person's opinions who count the most are your own Mm. about yourself and your own behavior. And that really got me through that time, as did Emma, to be fair. I used Emma as a sounding board. And if anyone's listening to this right now and going through something similar, if you can find someone in your life who can be a sounding board, a non-judgmental, accepting space. It can be anyone. It can be a friend. It can be a colleague. It can be a family member. Because sometimes you can gaslight yourself. Mm. Sometimes you really ask yourself, well, is it that bad? Am I right in doing this? It's such a big decision. And actually to have someone who's able to say, I'm rock solid for you. Emma used to say that to me all the time. I'm rock solid that you're doing the right thing. I know. And it's become a, it's become a phrase between us. She actually got me a t-shirt saying rock solid on it once. Um, And that was really, really helpful having that person. You have your book, Friendaholic. And so talking about friends is 
very pertinent within this conversation because it's a fabulous book. But I wonder for you, you know, you've got Emma and she sounds divine. And I have, as I'm sure you have, I have a whole group of friends, but I've got three friends that I could just trust like no other. It's hard for people to be able to sometimes find people that they can trust. And I I think trust, I'd love to know your, what you think is one of the biggest things in any relationship. Oh, definitely. I think it's foundational. And I'm incredibly lucky that my path crossed with Emma when it did in our first week at university. And I met my best friend when I was 19. But I also want people listening, if they feel like they don't have a best friend or they don't have close friendships and they struggle for whatever reason to forge connections, I don't want you to feel excluded from this conversation because I understand that there are people who live with social anxiety and who have a whole range of issues. They might be neurodivergent. They might really struggle to do that thing of befriending someone and gaining trust. But I do believe that there's hope out there for all of us. And I think the only way in which we can learn to trust others is first to trust ourselves. And that sounds like such a pat response to what you've asked me, but actually the work of trusting ourselves is lifelong and challenging because to trust ourselves, we first have to really intimately know ourselves and be truly honest about who we are and about what we have to give, but also what our limitations are. And we need to know how we'll respond to any given situation. And in forging that relationship, I believe that you open yourself up and you open the universe up to bringing you other relationships Mm. where other people feel a safety in that. They feel that you've done the necessary work and so they can risk trusting you too. And I think that's where I went wrong in my first marriage is that I hadn't done that work. I thought I had. I'd done therapy and everything, but I, but actually I don't think I did trust myself. Mm. And I do much more now. And I respect myself. I think that's the other thing. I think part of trusting yourself comes also from liking yourself. And that can be quite hard sometimes too. But yeah, I think you're right that for any relationship, trust is very important and it's built up over time. Yes. So it's not something, and that's Sometimes it's very difficult when you're talking about falling in love, there's this romanticized expectation forged by generations of romantic comedies that you fall in love and it's instant. But for me, that hasn't really been the case. The greatest love of my life, romantically speaking, is my now husband, Justin. And we were a real slow burn. I mean, there was immediate chemistry, but in terms of building the foundations for our relationship. We did that very intentionally and very consciously. And we built up that trust over a period of time. And we didn't tell each other that we loved each other until six months in, because it had taken that long for us to be able to feel comfortable making that commitment. And so I think that's the other thing that I would say that my trust with Emma has definitely been built over the many years that we have been friends and that we've been through the push and pull of friendship. And sometimes we're misaligned and we disagreed on something. I mean, not very often, I can only think of one instance, but we're really good communicators. Emma is a therapist Mm. and I'm someone who writes and podcasts for a living. So we're actually pretty good at communicating. And I think that's key because it's not that your friend has to 
believe exactly the same things that you do or see the world in the same way. But there has to be a core understanding of what their values are so that you can feel safe confiding in them. That's so true. And I'd love to know what you think about how, you know, within our lives, a lot of us will change as people. And some of us will do deep inner work or just life circumstances, things will change. And so we're maybe if we've had friendships that we've had since we were in our teens and then we find ourselves quite a bit older than that, we're not the same person. And so there starts to be this gap between that friend and where we are now. And I know for myself, when I went through a transition a decade ago, I was like, okay, who am I drawn to now? And, you know, most of my friends stayed the same, but there were a couple of friends where I thought, you know what, I just don't feel like we're on the same wavelength anymore. And I didn't say anything to them, but just over time, I kind of pulled away a little bit and they never said anything to me. I mean, maybe they thought the same thing and they were relieved. I mean, who (laughs) who knows? But I, I really felt like, it wasn't right for either of us and that Mm. it was better that our friendships kind of separated and there was a real not wanting to sound mean or anything like that, but I felt quite liberated after that. That wasn't serving either of us. And I wonder what you would say for anyone listening now that might be in a friendship where they feel that they're not the person that they were at school or at uni and they really don't know what to do as far as letting go from where where they were to where they are now? Well, part of the reason I wrote Friendaholic is because there wasn't sufficient language to explain and communicate what friendship means to us. And for so many of us, it's incredibly precious and one of the most important things in our life. But as a society, we have a tendency to elevate romantic love and forget about platonic love and just take it for granted and imagine it will always be there. And what that has led to is, in some instances, unrealistic expectations. So you're totally right that there's this expectation that if you sit next to someone at primary school, simply because your surnames start with the same letter, there is an expectation that you have to be friends for life or it's gone wrong, that you have failed at friendship or that one of you has been a bad friend because the friendship is no more. We don't have that same expectation of romantic love. With romantic love, there is an acceptance that we might date a number of people and we might go through a whole process where on the second date, we talk about our five-year plans and on the third date, we discuss whether we want kids. And then we might eventually settle down and there is a whole set of social rituals that you can do to mark each stage of your romantic relationship. Again, with friendship, we don't have that. And even the language of friendship is so moralizing, good, bad, you're a good friend, you're a bad friend. And I don't think that all friendships are intended to be lifelong. And I think that we need to destigmatize the notion of friendships ending because some friendships can be so powerful and so potent for a particular period of your life perhaps you're both going through a really difficult time. Perhaps you're both stuck in a job that you dislike or a relationship romantically that isn't working out. And that's where you forge your connection. And then one of you might get out of that relationship or out of that job and might move on. And the other one might not be able to stretch to accommodate it. And that's okay because I don't believe friendships are failures simply because they end. I believe that they have taught us something really important and will forever change our landscape. And in a way, we still have 
a dialogue with those friends who belong to our past because they have had a permanent impact on who we are and how we live our lives. And that's what I would say to anyone who is going through a potential friendship breakup or ending right now, that you are not a bad person for thinking this. And I would encourage you to honour the friendship for what it gave you rather than believing the most important thing is to keep it going Mm. and to keep it going and to eke out those bits that you still can. And because that's energetically draining and the chances are that if it's energetically draining for you, it is also for the other person. And sometimes you can communicate that with loving clarity and sometimes you can't. And part of the difficulty of not having a language around friendship, although I hope that's changed with my book, but part of the difficulty is that we also haven't had the language for ending. And so people tend to drop out or ghost you. And that can be incredibly painful. And I think that if we get more comfortable with the idea of some friendships ending, but still being thought of with love, we'll be able to communicate more easily as well. And I speak as someone who has experienced both of those things. I was ghosted by an incredibly close friend. So can you tell us what happened? Because I find that whole idea of ghosting so bizarre. Well, that's because you're a really good communicator. (laughs) (laughs) It was the slow motion grief, the like of which I've never experienced. So in my thirties and I met this woman, Becca, at a spin class at a time when I discovered (laughs) that I loved spinning, but I wasn't very good at it. And I remember her walking into the class and sitting in the front row and being one of those amazing people who knew all of the dance coordinations and could do the tap back in perfect rhythm. And we started chatting after class. And it was one of those things that I mentioned in the previous answer. We were both going through difficulties in our romantic relationships. And that's how we first bonded. And we became very, very close, very, very quickly. I thought it was closeness, but actually looking back, I realized that it was quite one way that I think I was more vulnerable and more open with Becca than she was with me. And I always treated her as someone, she was a little bit older. She was like an older sister figure to me. I really respected and admired her. And it felt that she was teaching me how to live in so many ways that I really admired her style and she took me shopping and things like that. And what I hadn't realized was that she could have interpreted that as my suffocating her individuality. Whereas I was interpreting it as us being close and sharing this amazing bond. And the ghosting happened really quite suddenly for me anyway. Um, The communication became much less frequent. Anytime I would suggest meeting up, she would not be able to. And then I thought, well, I'll just give her some space because maybe she's going through something and I I don't want to be uh, too intrusive. So then I gave her space and then I just never heard from her again. And I remember one day we lived quite close to each other and I was walking home from the tube and I saw her on the street and we met eyes and I saw her blank me. She just turned away and carried on Mm. walking. And it happened again a few months after that in a cafe where again, we locked eyes and she turned away. And I just thought, wow, I just, what could I possibly have done that was so terrible that merited cutting me out of her life to such an extent? And writing about that in the book was in, was really cathartic for me. And 
a great exercise actually in understanding someone else's point of view because the problem with ghosting is that you don't get closure you don't get an explanation no one is telling you what the issue is and so you narrativize and you put your own explanation in that place but actually writing about it meant that i had to look at my own behavior and i gained a lot more empathy for hers and i think she was clearly going through her own stuff and when my life started to take a different direction and when i did leave my difficult relationship and when my work started to go slightly better i think what happened was it highlighted the things that were still static in her life and she couldn't accommodate that and so i think of her with great love in terms of like what we went through together and writing about it enabled me to let it go peacefully but what that taught me that experience of ghosting was was how difficult it is to be on the receiving end of it and so although i am someone who's incredibly conflict avoidant i i do now try and communicate with loving clarity to friends where i do think we're drifting apart an ending or an explanation of sorts and i did that during the pandemic and i think many people actually did because i think many people reassessed their friendships during the pandemic and there was one friend who we had simply grown apart we lived in different places and she called me out on it and i ended up saying you know i think of you with nothing but love i think we're in different phases of our life right now and i wish you all the best but i'm probably going to go a bit quiet from now on and actually it weirdly made me feel closer to her because she'd given me the space to be able to be honest and she received it really well and i do think that there is a way of being clear and setting a boundary but doing it with love absolutely and i have been ghosted once and it was horrific and i feel exactly like it was with a man that i was supposed to be doing work with and he approached me and had said all this stuff and he was older so I really looked up to him he was a real gun in his field so I was like wow like he wants me to do x y and z and I got to know him really well and then like he made all these plans to um do all this stuff and then never again I just never wow. and he lives in a different country so it was not like I could bump into him but like you and this was quite a few years ago all I could think was like what did I do what did I do and mm -hmm. and someone said to me it's worse because you don't have closure. You hear stories of people like losing someone or they go missing and they never have closure. And obviously ghosting like we had is not at the same level, but you do understand that feeling of not having closure. It is the most horrible feeling because you just have no idea what happened. So you're making up in your head all this stuff, but you have no idea if that is actually the truth. Totally. There's a distinction here between full out ghosting where you never hear from the person again, they blank you in the street and someone introducing non-verbal boundaries and distancing themselves yes. gradually. Because I, I do understand and I have also been guilty of doing that, just making communication slightly less frequent because I don't feel that the friendship, we don't have enough in common anymore and actually it's going to be too much of a stretch for both of us to ensure that our friendship survives. I think that that's okay. Yes. And I just want to say that there is a difference between that and that you don't always have to be putting it into words, but I would encourage people just to try and think lovingly about 
how their communication or lack of might be being received. And quite often when you do start making your communication less frequent, you'll pick up on the fact that your friend on the other end of it is doing the same thing. And as you were saying, to your point earlier, is quite relieved in Mm. their own way because a friendship is reciprocal. So if one of you is feeling something that doesn't seem or feel right, pay attention to that because the other person is probably feeling it too. You mentioned something in the book, which is really interesting about how you spoke about a bit earlier, your journey trying to have a baby and going through IVF and how that actually was significant for you in the sense that your friends started to have kids and you didn't have kids. And so that obviously draws differences because even, you know, I know I've got two kids and I've made friends with people at the school and then you've got to do extracurricular activities. So you see them at soccer or whatever activity they're doing and how you have dealt with that. Yeah. This was a chapter I knew that I wanted to write because very often when a woman who doesn't have children writes about their experience with fertility, it's from the vantage point of having eventually had a child. And it was important for me to write about something that is still very raw for me because I haven't had that quote unquote happy ending. And I just realized through the course of writing the book that the one constant backdrop to a lot of what I was describing was my own fertility journey. So I had gone through unsuccessful IVF at the beginning of 2014. I had the first of three miscarriages. My marriage ended. I then did a whole gamut of fertility treatment, egg freezing. I had an operation on my womb, I, like everything. I had two more miscarriages with my now husband and it has been extraordinarily painful. And it is also thrown into high relief the rest of my life. And there was such a clear distinction between the friends who were able to be there for me and the ones who weren't. And I don't even mean that they had to put it into words or they had to understand the direct equivalent of what I was going through. It's just that during that time, obviously lots of my friends were settling down and having children without issue. And they became very involved in that. It's completely understandable that you would be involved in that. It's incredibly hard to be a parent. And there are those early years where you have to be selfish and you have to put your family first. But it was so interesting to me that even in the midst of that, there were certain people who would always make a kind of psychological space for me. So Emma had two young children during this time that I was going through most of my fertility treatment, but she always carved out some kind of space for me. Even if it was that I went down for a weekend and stayed with them and she took five minutes to have a cup of tea with me and she would say, I want to do this. It's important for me too. I get so much out of seeing you and having you and having this time that is separate, that is time for our friendship separate from anything else. And that meant so much to me. It really did because I felt so seen and valued by her. And the other thing that Emma always did was ask my opinions and ask me for advice on parenting, on her children. You know, I adore and love her children. I know them really well now. And so to be valued as someone who doesn't have children of her own, but might have an interesting perspective is also very, very meaningful. 
But there were certain friends during this time who never put that level of thought into what their friendships meant to them and would simply expect me as the childless woman to be living this footloose fancy free life where I'd be swilling cosmopolitans (laughs) whilst nightclubbing in stilettos. And um, they would always expect me to make the effort to come to them, to be involved in their family life, to turn up to children's birthday parties with presents, to hold their babies. And and there are some people who will absolutely love doing that and more power to you. I found it really difficult and very challenging at a time when the thing that I wanted most was my own baby, to be surrounded by other people's and for other people to think that they were giving me a great gift in that and not to put in the thought that I, in some way, as anyone going through a fertility battle, might be feeling that this is just a little bit challenging. That's all that I needed was just that degree of thought. And some people could do it and some people couldn't. And so some friendships did fall by the wayside at that time. And I think it coincided with a particular time in our culture where uh, motherhood specifically was being fetishized online. So it's the rise of the mummy blogger and the mummy fluencer. (laughs) And that thing of my kids are everything, but roll on gin o'clock. Like it's so conflicting, the messaging about motherhood online. It's either amazing or disastrous and the toughest thing that you'll ever do. And both of those extremes are really exclusionary for the rest of us. I was constantly told I would never understand what real love was like because I didn't have my own children. And these are just phrases that are kind of dashed off really easily without thought. And so really all I'm saying is to be thoughtful and to be kind. And a lot of, understandably, the language around fertility is really difficult. And a lot of people don't know what to say and don't know whether to broach it because they don't want to upset someone. But I would always say it's better to ask. And one of the things that you can say after any loss that just covers everything is, I'm so sorry. And that's it. And that's a complete sentence. And that's all many of us will ever need. You're not going to make our grief or our loss worse by talking to us about it. We already know that it's there. And so that's why I wrote that chapter. But I do want to make clear that I am not in any way saying that parents shouldn't be allowed to celebrate and focus on their children. I think that that's a wonderful thing. I'm surrounded by amazing parents and amazing kids. The thing that I was trying to do was to give voice to a cohort of people who have been silent or felt silenced for so long that Mm. it has felt quite marginalizing. And there are many people, understandably, who don't feel that they want to talk openly about their fertility struggles. I can do that. And I have a platform and I can use my voice for that. And I'm extremely passionate about that. And so it's about giving voice to those people and there being a tiny bit of course correction. And it's absolutely not that I don't love the parents in my life or the children in my life. And my best friend doesn't have kids and I adore every moment I spend with her. And I, yeah, when what you're saying really resonated because, you know, she's the auntie to my children. She gives them more time than my friends that have children. You know, so it, that's beautiful. Yeah, I adore having her in my life. It's amazing. And I, I wonder if you now, how's your fertility journey going? I am at the stage where I am making peace with the fact that I will not be a mother in the conventional sense. And that is a really challenging journey. But 
it's one that I also feel is in some way right. I I don't know. It's it's been so interesting, and you know, I had another round of fertility treatment at the beginning of this year that was unsuccessful, and it had taken a very long time to get to that stage, and we had a lot of hope riding on it. And I think that that just made me look back and realize that I spent 12 years of my life trying to do this and it hasn't happened. And actually my life is so rich in other ways. And I feel like when you're going through a fertility journey, it's so all encompassing that it diverts a lot of your creative energy. And I'm really appreciative at the moment of having sort of hung up my armor and for a bit at least just feeling the release of being able to use that creative energy in other ways. So that's what I'm coming to terms with at the moment. I am at peace with it because I'm incredibly grateful for the things that I've learned along the way and the things that life has taught me and how humbling it's been. But I'm also extremely grateful for the incredible community of people that I feel so deeply connected to. The people who have reached out to me after this book was published, there was a chapter extracted in the Times magazine over here in the UK, which is all about fertility. I get so many messages and emails from people who feel seen and heard and who tell me to keep going. And that is one of the most valuable things in my life. So I don't feel alone in it anymore. And I think that's something that I want to be able to give to other people because it can feel so isolating, but you're not alone. And in a way you're part of a really strong, resilient, pioneering generation. And we're showing that things can be done differently. You mentioned that you'd learned a lot along the way. And I wonder what some of those things are that you've learned. Well, I've learned that sometimes, no matter how hard you try and how much effort you put into something, actually, you don't get what you think you wanted. So there are always going to be mysteries beyond our control. But my experience is that sometimes we don't want the right things for ourselves. And actually, when you don't get the thing that you spent so long yearning for, something else will reveal itself that you've never anticipated. And on the other side of the life that you expected you would have is the life that you can think about how you want to live. So I think I spent a lot of time when I was younger devising the most intricate life and career plans for myself. And I would have everything mapped out. And on that life plan was getting married at a certain age, having two children, living in a certain place, having a certain career. And none of that has happened. <laughs> you know, getting divorced was my first experience of, of that life map not working. But amazing things that I could never have anticipated have happened. And it's partly because when you when your life implodes, you're also left with a blank canvas and that can feel scary but you're encouraged to think about what painting you want to put on that canvas. And so I think that's the main thing that I've learned, that there are opportunities that you will never have thought of, and they're often the best ones. You're very vulnerable and open, which I think is such a beautiful trait. But I wonder, you know, coming from being a people pleaser, how you have the courage to be so open. First of all, thank you. That's a lovely thing to say. And 
people have been very kind and said that I'm brave and courageous. And I don't really see it as that. I see it as my being able to speak my authentic truth. Mm. And actually the thing that I discovered was when I started doing that, I was more accepted by people who found me because of that authenticity. So there's an immediate shortcut to connection there because we see each other as we really are. And I think I had been going wrong all of that time. So being a people pleaser, I wasn't showing that side of me because I didn't think it would be accepted. I thought I would be weird or deemed a failure or, and actually as soon as I took that first plunge to say something as it really was, I realized that it unlocked more connection for me, but more real connection. Mm. I think the thing that made me realize that was launching my podcast, How to Fail. And that came in the wake of my divorce. And it came about because I was frustrated with the kind of print journalism, celebrity interviews I was doing, which always focused on the latest film they had to promote or the success that they'd had or the award that they just won. And actually when I was doing those interviews and I would be in conversation with someone, the most revealing and interesting bits for me were where we connected through vulnerability. And I wanted a, a format where I could explore that in an interview setting. And so I launched How to Fail, where the premise is that I asked people to, to give me three failures in advance of recording that then form the bare bones of the interview. And when I first did that, that first season of How to Fail, I was still very much like a traditional print journalist. And I didn't think it was professional for me to bring myself into the interview. It was all about the mm. other person asking them questions. And, and it was so revealing to me because over that first season and then into the second, I would get listener comments saying, we like it when you share something about yourself. And that's what gave me the courage to do it. And so then I started doing it more and then I had more responses like that. And I felt so relieved. Mm. I felt I could actually show up as I truly am. And that for me now is the definition of success and fulfillment is being able to bring my authentic self to everything that I do because I'm not having to remember the half truths that I've told. Yes. <laughs> so I can show up to you today and this is me now for the rest of the day. This is me when I'm with my husband. This is me when I'm stroking my cat. It's me when I'm recording a podcast and it's me when I'm writing a book. And that's a really privileged position to be in. It's so funny you say that because I remember my days of being a radio producer and it's six minute breaks. And I remember thinking, how can anyone listen to this? I remember when this amazing guest on he was in Guantanamo Bay or something like that. He was like captured and he had been falsely accused of doing something he didn't do, put in there. And literally they spoke to him for six minutes. And I'm like, what can you get out of someone for six minutes who's like <laughs> yeah. been through all that stuff? This was way before podcasts existed. And I sat there thinking, God, this is just not even touching the surface. To me, this feels quite empty. And so when I got to do my podcast and have these really in-depth conversations, it was just so beautiful, so meaningful. And like you, people that listened were writing in saying, oh my God, mm. I started off doing half an hour episodes and everyone said, no, you need to do longer. You're only touching the surface there. Because I thought, oh, they can only ingest half an hour. I had the same mindset. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> 
think someone from the podcasting, like where I work was like, no, no, they only like listening to this much. And I was like, I don't know where you got those stats from, but I don't believe in the form, the content that we're doing that to be true. So yes, I find what you're saying just so on point. I wonder, Elizabeth, for you, what is the best advice that you have been given? I haven't been given it, but I read it on the back of a toilet door. (laughs) So let me explain, (laughs) which is um, after my divorce, I got into a relationship like the massive cliche that I am with a younger man. And we went out for about two years and he was a lovely person, but it was just never going to go anywhere. And I remember the first mini break that we had together where we booked this pub in the country and we went there and I was feeling, you know, that bit at the beginning of a relationship where it's meant to be so romantic and honeymoonish, but actually you just feel sort of jittery and stressed and you're constantly second guessing yourself. I was in that phase and we went for a cup of tea in a local cafe and I went to the toilet and I locked the door and on the back of this door was a prose poem called Desiderata by Max Ehrman. And in that poem is a line the universe is unfolding exactly as it should. Mm. And I could feel my shoulders drop and my lungs expand as I read this line. And I felt like, I don't know what I'm doing, but the universe is unfolding exactly as it should. And I have faith in that, that this journey is taking me to where I need to be. And that is something that I really live my life by. And I know that not everyone has their version of faith or spiritualism or belief in a universe, but I really do. And I really do believe that there are bigger forces at work. Mm. And I believe that I'm on the path I'm meant to be on and it will lead me into some interesting directions, but ultimately where I need to go. Yes, that's so true. I always think life happens for you, not to you. And when you truly understand that, you become more liberated in creating your life rather than just being a victim of it. Exactly that. What do you wish for yourself, Elizabeth? Wow, that's <laughs> such a good question. Okay, um, I wish for fulfillment, connection, love, and creativity. I think the older I get, the more I understand the importance of being engaged with life and excited by it. And I really am. And I feel that I just want more and more opportunities to explore that. And I think what I wish for myself in a granular way is to feel less stressed. Because although I know on one level the universe is unfolding as it should, and I know I'm where I'm meant to be, that doesn't always detract from the fact that I make myself incredibly busy. I do feel quite stressed and worried sometimes. I suppose what I wish for myself is surrender. Mm. Being able to fully surrender to that thing that I believe. And that's something that is my life's purpose, I think. Mm. That journey towards that, towards a kind of enlightenment. That's what I wish for myself. I've heard you say that prayer has been a part of your life for a while and something that you do believe in. I wonder what your favourite prayer is. I pray using my own words. There is an amazing one that I heard at a wedding recently and it's the Francis Drake prayer and I can't remember it off 
by heart, but I'd never heard it before. And the general tone of it was life can be a stormy sea, but the waves take you where you need to go. And um, just to paraphrase Francis Drake, um, I loved that one. And I do genuinely sometimes recite the Lord's Prayer just because that's the earliest one that I learned. And I do think there's something very beautiful about ritual and memory and being able to recite something that has been recited over centuries by so many different people. I love that feeling of connection through the ages. And it doesn't even need to mean that you have a religious faith. Mm. There's just something about being able to hold hands with someone who lived many centuries ago through time that I find really reassuring. So, but no, generally I use my own words and I just have a conversation with God or whatever God is for you. It's funny you say that because I read about this beautiful prayer, the St. Francis prayer in one of Wayne Dyer's books. And I just loved it. So I memorized it. And it's just a prayer that I say every day. And, and it is it has religious undertones that I'm not connected to, but it's about being in service. And it's just, there is something so beautiful about the tradition of me saying that every morning before I wake up, like as soon as my eyes open or as soon as my brain's alert, I should say, then I, in my head, will say that prayer. It just starts your day so beautifully. I think that's such a powerful thing to share. And I think that many people find the idea of meditating intimidating. So, I mean, I'm one of them, <laughs> but one way of, of introducing that element of ritual to your life is to do exactly that and to have something that you start the day with to set you up and to set your intention. I think that's really beautiful. Mm. What's your greatest hope for society today? I think um, it comes down to empathy and active empathy. So I am a huge believer in the importance of connection. And what that really means is someone who is able to be thoughtful enough to imagine what life might be like for someone else. And I don't think that there is enough of that thoughtfulness, certainly in public life, but also in our private lives. I think that we live in a culture that is increasingly self-absorbed at the same time as having this simulacrum of globalism. Actually, I think just the practice of active thoughtfulness would solve a lot of our issues. Mm. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness to me is a life that makes a positive difference in other people's lives. It's a life with purpose and it's a life filled with love, both for the people you know and the people that you have yet to meet. Elizabeth Day, thank you for being so vulnerable in your, all the work that you do. Thank you for your newest book, Friendaholics. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been an enlightenment, this podcast. I've really loved it. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. 
to purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.